This is the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Three, two, one, and welcome everybody to the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. I am your host, John Allen, and today I have four of the six founding members of the organization. That is Stop Extraterritorial American Taxation. Good evening, my friends. How's everybody doing? Good evening. Good evening. There we good, go. Good. Um, what I'd like to do. Good morning. Yeah. Well, good morning there. <laughs> yeah. What I would like to do so that my so that my listeners know who's who by the sound of their voice. I want to make uh, some rounds through the four of you and just give a quick, you know. 30 seconds to 60 second uh, presentation of who you are, a little bit about your background and where you're currently living. Um, let's start with Keith. Sure. Um, I'm Keith Redmond. I am currently, I'm a bit of a, a nomad at the moment, but I'm currently in Washington, D.C., caring for elderly parents, but have been based in uh, Paris, France for many years. Um, I've been an American overseas advocate probably going on nine years now and founding uh, founding a Facebook group where we have over 7,000 members called American Expatriates. Yeah. And so I've been intimately involved in the uh, uh, fight for um, ending the way the U.S. taxes outside the U.S., um, tax residents of other countries. So I'm very glad to be part of this group and starting this new organization called SEAT. So I thank you for the invitation. Oh, thank you for being here, Keith. Thanks for that introduction. Um, Laura. Hi, I'm Laura, uh, Laura Snyder. I grew up in Eureka, Illinois. Um, I have lived in Europe, mostly France, since 1995, and I've uh, past few years been doing a fair amount of research and writing on, uh, on basically the uh, tax and banking issues that Americans living overseas face as a result of U.S. policies. You're an attorney, are you not, Laura? Yes, I am. Okay. Oh. Thanks. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I am. I am an attorney. I mean, I I went to law school and I have worked <laughs> as a lawyer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. And then uh, Karen. Uh, yeah, I'm Karen Alpert. I um, I live in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, we've been in Australia since 1995. I grew up in California. So I'm a uh, finance academic at the University of Queensland here in in Brisbane. And uh, I'm a former U.S. citizen, having found that the, all of the compliance issues and, and everything were just more than I could handle, um, especially if I wanted to plan for a rational and self-funded retirement here in Australia. Yeah, I, I would like to talk about that very issue. Um, I see myself struggling with that very same thing when it comes to retirement. Uh, just on a little side note, I did a uh, podcast episode earlier today, pre-recorded, that I'll be releasing um, this coming Sunday with a gentleman who lives in Norway, but he's originally from Australia. So this is my second dose of Australia for the day. Cool. <laughs> And uh, then we have, and, and so yep. here, here it's the next day and nice and here it's yeah. the next day and very early yeah. rather, rather than late in the evening in Europe. It's, it's six a.m. <laughs> there and, you go. Uh, cool and yeah, yeah, sunny. Mm -hmm. And then we have John. Give us a little bit of your background, John. 
All right, thanks. Uh, my name is John Richardson. Uh, I live in Toronto, Canada. I'm a lawyer. Basically, I help people who are afflicted with U.S. extraterritorial tax and other regulatory policies. And as you might expect, there's no shortage of those kinds of problems. And I am very much committed to uh, restraining these rules and ending these, uh, you know, absolutely ridiculous, counterproductive, horrible laws that the United States is imposing on the rest of the world. You know, and I, I, I think I can start right there uh, by agreeing with a few of the elements of your statement. It is a rather ridiculous law. It is a rather, can we call it imperialistic, uh, arrogant law or arrogant rule that is set up that kind of hinders expats in their quest to, to quite simply have a good life. <laughs> uh, I don't think that uh, people living in the United States understand how this affects expats. And I want to divide the expat group up into two different groups because there are expats who are just uh, making a middle-class wage, living a middle-class life. But then there are expats who are in that other category, that higher uh, income bracket. Uh, and they're going to experience these taxation rules, regulations, and laws in quite a different way. Uh, can, can one of you talk about that issue? The difference between a middle-class... Yeah, well, so yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, so I think a, a middle-class saver is really, really hampered by these laws. Someone who is wealthy can afford to get the tax advice and to plan their um, investments, etc., around these laws. But someone who's middle-class can't afford that advice. And... You know, I'm, I'm a finance academic, right? What yeah. do I tell my students? Yeah. You want to, to diversify, and so therefore you should be buying an index fund because then you get the maximum diversification, and it doesn't matter if you've got $1,000 to invest or $500,000 to invest, you're still getting the full diversification. Where, and, um, and so... You know, if you're middle class and you want to save for your retirement, it, um, mutual funds are the way to do it. Because right. you can't afford to diversify properly but, with um, with with direct shares, right? Right, but the way but the way the laws are are particularly yeah, mutual funds are taxed. Um, very punitively if they're not U.S. mutual funds. And there we go. And that's, the, and, and that's the key and that's element. that's the problem. That's the key element of all of this here. Yeah. Uh, it is a, it's, I right. call it a punishment. It's a punishment um, that, that prohibits someone like me from investing independently towards my retirement right. uh, because it wouldn't make sense exactly. to do it because I'm going to be, yeah. I'm going to be taxed on that in Norway and then I'm going to be taxed and not just taxed, but taxed quite harshly again through the United States tax system. Now, this isn't, yeah. a, this is not yeah, a new, absolutely. this is not a new law, is it? This has been on the books for. No, this law has been on the books since 1986. Yeah. 
It was part of the Tax Reform Act of 1986, the passive foreign investment company regime. And so if you look at the investments that were available in 1986 and what Congress was aiming at, they were aiming at the high net worth individual who goes out and arranges some sort of investment, private investment scheme, not a publicly listed one that's available for everybody to, to right. buy. But they specifically arrange a private um, investment company so that it doesn't, so that it's not a controlled foreign corporation and they're not subject to all of those rules. So Congress is making sure you can't go around that door if you're if you're wealthy. But um, yeah, so. Let me let yes, me ask the you. Passive foreign. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me let me ask you this, Laura. Okay. No, I'm sorry. I'm I'm getting a little bit of a lag in my sound here. That's some, one of one of us has some bad a bad internet connection. I was only hearing almost every, yeah every other word of what you were saying, Karen. So I don't I don't mean to cut you off, but but let me let me ask Laura a question here. Um, you, if, if I understand correctly, you are the you are the uh, the head of this uh, organization, uh, Seat. Is that correct? Uh, well, we're very collegial, but yes, I've okay. been named the president. Okay, we, we operate in very collegial way. Why why do we need an organization like Seat? What can you do? What can your organization do for American expats? Why did you guys get together, and what can you do for us? Well, what we want to do is um, be a group that's very focused on one thing, which is ending uh, the extraterritorial taxation of, of Americans living overseas. Um, other people have definitely worked on this issue and other organizations have worked on this issue, but um, all the other organizations that work on this issue haven't had this singular focus. Okay, so and, you guys are, you uh, guys. think that. It, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, well, we, we think that it's at this stage in the game, um, we think that it's needed to have an organization that really does have that singular focus, that's not distracted by other issues, that might may or may not be compromised by other issues. I like the way that sounds. I really do. Um, let me ask you this, though. How feasible is it that your organization or any organization will be able to make a difference in the current tax law as it applies to expats, because this, you know, you, as you say, this has been, uh, this has been in place since the middle eighties. And as far as I know, nothing has happened that is to the favor of the American expat. Well, um, I think we have to believe that we're going to make a difference. Otherwise, why would we try? Yeah. Um, although this question um, reminds me of, of, I, I think, let me put it this way. I think that when you're faced with an injustice um, and you understand that it's an injustice and you are capable of fighting against that injustice, I think it's your duty to fight that injustice, whether you're going to win or not. You fight an injustice because it's an injustice. You don't fight an injustice because you're necessarily going to win. Okay. Does that, that makes sense. That makes sense. That but makes but a, that, being, that being said, I, I think we have every chance of, of being successful. Um, are we going to be successful tomorrow? No. Are we going to be successful next year? No. But in the long run, are we going to be successful? I think if all of us didn't believe that, we wouldn't be. We wouldn't be doing. We wouldn't yeah, be doing what we're doing. Yeah, I would imagine because I, you, you all. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Keith. Go ahead. 
Yeah, and I, th- I think what's different right now, and call me a cockeyed optimist, is that this is the first organization that is solely focused on the U.S. ending, imposing its tax code outside the U.S. on tax residents of other countries. That is our focus. And no disrespect to other organizations, but they have other things that they deal with. And so we can really be very, um, we can concentrate on this particular aspect. That's point number one. Point number two is that this situation not only affects Americans overseas, whether they be expats or American emigrants, who are long-term Americans living in different countries, but you also have green card holders living overseas. You have accidental Americans and their respective families. So what's, it's what's an accidental American? Can you explain that that term to my listeners? Yeah, I'll get. I'll give a very classic example of what an accidental American is, and I'll use France as an example, but it could be any country. So you have, uh, let's say, a French uh, couple who are in the United States for studying or for work on a temporary basis, and they have a child, and that child is born on American soil. Therefore, that child is automatically deemed an American citizen. So after three months, they move back to France with that child. And that child is French as well, lives in France, doesn't speak English, speaks French, is in the French system, has uh, French education, works in France, buys a home in France, has everything that is French. Fast forward and lo and behold, they find out because of the enforcement tool that has been put in the play called FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, they find out that they are also uh, deemed American and therefore they are expected to file and pay any taxes due to the United States, even though they left the United States at three months of age in diapers. That's the classic example of an accidental American. And that particular population has been exponentially growing uh, globally, and most particularly in Europe, where they've been very well organized to combat this situation. So I'm just I'm just running uh, that, through. That's the I'm example just, there. I'm just running through a scenario that that a um, a person who is um, an accidental American, of course, most likely they don't know that they are an accidental American, and maybe they live their entire life in Norway, for example. They're getting ready to retire at the age of seventy, for example, and then all of a sudden they get a letter from the IRS. Well, they would probably get a letter more from their bank first that identifies mm-hmm. them as a U.S. person, and that kind of opens because, up the whole Pandora's box yeah, about the taxation Because the, the, the IRS, IRS doesn't know they exist. <laughs> right. Right. The IRS has no clue because you have to remember, though, you know, and I want in no disrespect on accidental Americans. I don't want to concentrate just on that. No, no, but no. it is an important part of the entire population. Sure. But they don't have a social security number. and Many of them don't even have a U.S. passport. So they don't even know the IRS knows that they exist. So but so, so let's say you're an American who has moved to Norway or France or wherever. Uh, you're an American citizen. You live maybe the first 30 years of your life in the USA. You move to Norway. Um, you have residency, you open a bank account and you're doing business. Uh, and then all of the sudden, um, well, I don't, let me ask you this. Is it such that the IRS 
or the United States government in some way or another has sent out information about their expectancy when it comes to taxing American citizens living abroad? Have they sent out this information to banks and to governments across the world? I, 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 I see Laura shaking her head. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen that way. No. Some people might actually some people might actually wish that it happened that way for various <laughs> reasons. But um but it definitely does not happen that way. Um the IRS uh doesn't really doesn't have a system in place to keep track of where people are. No. Um what so so I think you have to point a fat cut. <laughs> yes, I think you have to go back in time. You were asking about how long these laws have been in place. Yeah. Well, I think you have to uh, ask that question. There's two responses to that question. There's how long have the tax provisions existed in in various forms, because certain certain things like PFIX and trusts have come into place later than the basic uh, income tax um, being subject to taxation, even if you live outside the U.S. That's been true uh, you know, since, uh, well, since the Civil War and then again since the 16th Amendment, you know, uh, made, uh, okay. made a, a federal income tax constitutional. Um, but, but up until FATCA was adopted in, uh, well, in 2010 and then implemented a few years later, it was very difficult for the IRS to find people. So the, the Americans who lived overseas who were actually filing income tax returns was a actually not a large percentage given the no, total number of Americans that probably did live overseas. Did yeah. you have to remember a lot of these people had no idea that they were being considered Americans or, or, you know, something they, you know, something they sort of thought about in the back of their mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of people would have left the U S in their twenties and it would have never occurred to them that they should be filing these returns or they knew that the IRS had difficulty enforcing it. And so they, they didn't do it. But what happened when FATCA came along is you see FATCA is, a, is uh, puts obligations on Americans living overseas, as well as on banks. And it makes all the foreign banks or at least the ones that want to have anything to do with the United States, it makes them figure out who are their U.S. clients, and it makes them get their Social Security numbers or their uh, ITINs, yeah. and uh, they those have to re- be reported back to the IRS. So that's when that's what created the problem that you have now. It, it, it's not that it wasn't a problem before, but you could almost you could find a lot of people could. You, it was possible for a, mo- a lot of people to ignore the laws or yeah. find workarounds. Right. FATCA has brought all these Americans out of the woodwork. Right. Or has, not even you know, know about the made law. all this stuff very difficult to ignore. And so that's why you, you see now over the past decade, this has become such a big problem. It's why if you look at the numbers of people renouncing U.S. citizenship, it's why they've shot up since yeah. FATCA was implemented. And that's I think a that's long a long answer to your question. That's, yeah, but that's a very good answer. That's the kind of answer my, my listeners would like to have because, I, again, I know from personal experience and from my own personal context, there are many of us uh, who, who are really worried, really scared about what's happening there. Let me, let me shift over to yeah. you, John. Um, if uh, I hear John comes to life now, there he is. <laughs> uh, John, I'm I'm a I'm a expat. Um, you know, uh, FATCA is in place, so now my bank is asking me for uh, my social security number. 
what would you, and, and then I call you, you're my attorney, or I want you to be my attorney. I want you to help me. My bank is asking for my social security number here in Norway. What would you advise me to do? Well, we're assuming you, you have a social security number. Yeah. Let's, let's say I'm, I'm an American citizen. I lived in the U S my. You definitely, who definitely has a social security number. Who has a, uh, a, an American. Who definitely has one. Yes. An American citizen with a social security number and a bank account, a job income in another country. So I call you up asking for help and well, advice. Sure. The first question I would ask is whether you want to remain an American citizen at all. Uh, Which goes back to what Lori said. A lot of people, yeah, yeah, a lot of people are just gonna maybe to avoid all of this trouble, just renounce their citizenship. But let's say I want to stay an American citizen. Well, if you want to stay an American citizen, uh, what you know, I I think the answer is that you've got to try to comply with the laws. If if you're if you're asked for the Social Security number, it's pretty clear that. Uh, you've told them that you're an American, or it's their view that uh, that you are an American. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if you know, if you're vehemently saying yes, yes, I was born an American, I want to be an American, I am an American. I mean, I think you've got to comply with the law. So then you're going to give them the Social Security number, or uh, if you don't want to give them the Social Security number, the way the IGAs work is that the uh, the bank will report your information to the IRS in any case. Now, right. what happens to it after that, given the apparent confusion, is anybody's guess. Uh, but, you know, what it does do then is raise the question, are we talking about somebody who's filing U.S. taxes or not filing U.S. taxes? Let's say it's someone who has never filed U.S. taxes. Um, I know of people here in Norway who have been here for for years, some of them for decades, and they've never filed U.S. taxes since they've been in Norway. I'm sure they did before they came to Norway, but since they've been in Norway, they haven't filed any taxes. Yeah, well... Some of them probably will continue not filing just because they can't get the help that's required to file. It's enormously complicated to file U.S. taxes. I think we should Uh, clarify something here. They're not filing U.S. taxes. I am sure that they are filing and paying their taxes yes. in Norway. Yeah, in this example, it's yeah, very yeah, important yes, to, make this, that, yes. to make that distinction. Yes, yes, yes. yes. In this yeah. example, and, they're and, filing. And therefore, ta- they probably owe very little U.S. US tax because yeah. Norway's tax is probably higher than U.S. tax. I've heard stories of people here of American expats here in Norway who have actually actually gotten money back when they filed taxes. Uh, in the United States, as they live here in Norway, they've actually gotten money back, which I f- thought was very odd because they have no income in the United States. All of their income is here in Norway. It's under, let's say it's under, it's under $60,000 uh, annual income. They file taxes here in Norway. They pay their taxes here in Norway. They unwillingly file taxes in the United States. And that's a heck of a cost. Um, they use these different online companies. Some people have a tax accountant who, who files for them, but a lot of people are using these online services to file taxes, and that costs an arm and a leg. But they get some healing of that financial wound and that they have actually gotten money back from the United States, from the IRS. Right. That's odd. That's, That's not the odd. norm, but it, yeah, it is odd, but it's not well, the norm. It, 
it's the refundable child credit in most cases. Maybe if that's what's pushing them over. Yeah. Maybe that's what's pushing them over into actually getting a return from the IRS. But 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 I think it speaks mm-hmm. to the um, to the unfairness. And I don't want to sound like a crybaby, but I truly believe it is unfair uh, uh, that 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 I have to file taxes um, in the United States when I don't live there. I don't have any income. But right. it's and, and I think it speaks no to the unfairness. No other country in the world does this. Right, and I right. think it speaks to the unfairness because it is such an enormous cost. It costs a right. lot of money to file taxes every year in the yeah. United States when you live here in Norway. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important. I think it's important just to add on to what Laura is stating because there are some myths out there. And I know some of your audience happens to be in the United States yes. is that Americans overseas, whether you call them expats, American immigrants or whatever, they are not trying to get out of filing taxes because they actually file and pay taxes where they live in their country of residence, yes. Norway, France, Australia, Canada, etc. Point number one. Point number two that always is brought up is that the first $100,000, and that fluctuates a little bit from year to year, is considered tax-free. That is a myth. It just happens to be that you don't have to, um, that it's an exemption in filing U.S. taxes, but you actually do pay tax on that money in your country of residence. Yes. So I bring that up because I know, again, you have a homeland audience, and it's really important to squash those myths. Yes, and, and a lot of people do think that. I've had comments, I've, I've had discussions with people online, uh, Americans living back home, and they they allude to this thought that they have that it's just a tax heaven, and that's why I moved out of the States. That's why Americans are leaving the States, because you don't have to pay taxes uh, when you do that. And that's just not the case. I wish it was. Nope. <laughs> but it's yeah, not, nobody moves not to France not to pay taxes, let me tell you. <laughs> or Australia. Or Australia, yeah. yes. I believe you. Um, or Canada, or certainly not Norway. Right. But so the other thing that that's important to understand here is that if you're living outside the U.S., you're actually subject to a completely different and much more punitive tax system. And we alluded to that when we were talking about the mutual funds, how a yes. foreign mutual fund is taxed more punitively than a U.S. one. And so you can have – Vanguard's got funds all over the world. They've got a, funds in Australia. They've got funds in, in the U.S. The Australian funds basically buy shares in the U.S. funds, but they're Australian domiciled so that they can pass on capital gains through to Australian taxpayers, right? So if I buy the Australian domiciled um, Vanguard fund, that's a passive foreign investment company and tax punitively on my U.S. return. Oh, if I buy the U.S. domiciled Vanguard one, I'm fine as far as the U.S. is concerned, but I I don't get the same treatment in Australia as if I had bought the Australian domiciled one. So I can't win. <sighs> One, one side or the other, I'm buying a foreign mutual yeah, fund. Yeah, wow. Uh, John, as, as an attorney, I, I as, if, no, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Laura. I was going to say, I, I, would, I would like to add another example to what Karen um, was just saying. If um, one of our other um, co-founders of SEAT was here with us, he would talk about what happens when you are receiving disability uh, benefits in the country where you live. 
Because um, actually, I'd even go back to what you said at the very beginning of the call. You talked about how there are middle class Americans and wealthy Americans living overseas. I would say that um, the Americans who live overseas are ordinary people, just like any other group of people. Yeah. And many of them are not middle class. They, they have a very low incomes. And then there's a many that are middle class and then there's a few that are wealthy. Um, so there are Americans living overseas who are living on or receive disability benefits. And um, I think that this is a good example of um, really some of the fundamental injustices in the system. Because when you receive a disability benefit from another country, not the United States, um, that is not earned income. That's unearned income. And so it's not eligible for the foreign earned income exclusion, that $100,000, give or take, that Keith was mentioning just a few minutes ago. Right. So, so it doesn't qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion. So then you would say, okay, well, you could get a tax credit for that. Well, in a lot of countries, disability benefits are not taxed or they're taxed at a lower rate than they're taxed in oh, whatever the applicable U.S. rate is. I see. And so suddenly you're paying tax to the United States on a, on a public welfare benefit that you received from another country. And the only reason why that's happening is because you're a U.S. citizen. And, you know, this is, these are, this is one of the many types of things that would drive someone to say, oh my gosh, can I stay a U.S. citizen? Does it, I'm just, try, yeah, I'm, can I'm, I afford it? I'm thinking that through, and that actually gives me chills down my spine. I've had, um, since 2017, I've had eight operations on my shoulder. Um, my left arm is pretty dead and it might turn into a situation where I retire early and get some sort of disability or some sort of social um, uh, support payments for that injury. And if I understand you correctly, which I think I do, then that would mean that that money, those monies will actually be much less. And this is money that I would be expecting to carry me through an early retirement, but it won't do that. It won't do that. It won't do, it won't do that in, really, the, in the degree that I think it will, because I'm going to get taxed pretty harshly from the United States. Am I thinking, be, am I thinking spending, it depends on the country. Yeah. You need to Go look ahead, at the tax treaty of the country that you're living in because the way these are taxed is differ, different for each country. So if it's treated as a Social Security benefit and your country's tax treaty says that the U.S. can't tax Social Security benefits, then the U.S. may not tax it. So, I, I think I'm going to be reading you know, that treaty. About fairness. <laughs> all, all, what it really what really matters is where you live. <laughs> oh. that, that makes a big difference. Americans living in Norway are taxed differently from Americans living in Australia and Americans living in France. I tell I mean, you, it's it's it depends on the specific treaty. I tell you, it's a scary thought though because that could seriously hamper someone's way of life. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, John, and, your, and, um, because the, the determinant, I'll let you ask John. No, go ahead, Laura. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. And then I'll go over to John with a question. Go ahead, Laura. So, the determinations here can be very complicated, and sometimes the answer isn't even clear. So, uh, on top of you know what we just talked about, there's how do you get to an answer? 
You know, like you're wondering what what's the case for your specific situation. Well, you've got to do the research yeah. and maybe the answer won't be clear. And so then maybe, you, you know, and if you're working with a tax advisor who's probably going to say, well, you need to come down on the you need to be conservative. And, you know, if there's a doubt, then you need to declare it, you need to pay the tax on it yeah. just to be safe, et cetera. So that's just, it's not one problem. It's just you know, layers of problems. I, I don't see how, I don't see how a person could, you know, breathe out and lower their shoulders and enjoy their retirement uh, with, 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 with so much being uncertain, all, all these things with FATCA and, and what the IRS may be uh, demanding of expats. And that's kind of what I was thinking about to ask you, John, what are some of the, uh, you know, I know you have uh, attorney client privilege, but what are some of the, uh, can you give us a hypothetical uh, situation with an expat that might be facing some serious challenges, whether it's with their retirement benefits, whether it's with disability benefits or, or if they're in a situation where they're actually evaluating whether or not they should, um, they should give up their American citizenship. What, uh, what, what do you see out there? Well, first of all, uh, you're giving me, you know, three or four different factual situations. <laughs> pick pick but the I most fun one. Complete confidence. That's okay. I can say with complete confidence that all roads lead to renunciation. Every one of those people will find they have to renounce once they start filing U.S. tax returns. But to run through the various hypotheticals quickly, I think so. We'll start off. I think you were talking generally about retirement. Well, in two th- in in Canada, uh, there are many people who use small business corporations as private pension plans. It's just how the Canadian tax system works. And in 2017, as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, uh, part of the uh, overhaul was something called the Transition Tax which essentially was amending the Internal Revenue Code to retroactively tax and virtually confiscate 17.54% of the uh, retained percent of the retained earnings in these corporations. In other words, the pension, the value of the right. pension, the only way to pay that without a realization event would be, of course, to liquidate the pension. So, number one, they steal the uh, pensions of those who actually try to plan for retirement. Oh, that's just... the other end of the extreme. I think you were talking about people with disabilities. Oh, I can go on all day. I will repeat again for your listeners, for those filing U.S. tax returns, all roads lead to renunciation. Just a question when you finally realize it. Okay? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we can go to the other extreme. Uh, let's say somebody is uh, disabled. A candidate has something called a registered disability savings plan. Uh, the consensus is that... Uh, these are, are taxed as foreign trusts uh, in the United States, which means they're subject to extremely punitive taxation. And part of the problem with this is that there's no consensus really on how they're to be taxed. So, you know, you go to your local tax preparer, who, of course, doesn't understand it either. And as uh, Laura suggested, well, I wouldn't call it a conservative approach. I would take it an approach to make sure that the tax preparer doesn't run afoul of IRS guidelines. Yeah. And basically, uh, you know, nullifies the benefit of that. Uh, Karen's already talked about the problem of middle-class financial planning, the whole mutual fund thing. I'll give you another example. Uh, we can be in Canada, Australia, the U.K., 
Um, you know, there's no right or wrong taxes. Some different countries use have different kinds of taxes and use tax policy to achieve a socially desirable result. And a socially desirable result, uh, our objective in many countries is home ownership. Yeah. Why? Because if people own their homes, they have a place to live. It makes them less dependent on, you know, government uh, government services and this type of thing. So there's a basically in Canada, for example. The sale on the capital gain of a house is tax-free. Uh, in the U.S., uh, it's a tax. The, the gain is tax subject to uh, what is comparatively in major capitals of the world a small, uh, a small amount of two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars threshold. Now, the bottom line on that is that American citizens living outside the United States are essentially permanently downwardly mobile people because these laws are set up so that people can sell their house, not have the gains tax away to be able to move to another neighborhood or move across the country or something like that. Americans can't do that unless, of course, they want to run their lives so they buy and sell houses every couple of years to make sure that you know, they have the benefit of that $250,000 exemption. But, of course, you know, as you know, buying and selling houses eats up fees, et cetera. After a decade of working on this problem, I do not think there's a way out for, for tax-compliant Americans unless they have nothing but a job. And that, that, I don't know. I mean, I will add that, you know, in the U.K., for example, you have things that are called ICES, which are basically – you know, savings accounts with a tax wrapper written around them, so you don't have to pay U.K. tax on that. Of course, you do have to pay U.S. tax. And I would add further that the equivalent programs in the United States are, of course, tax-free. Uh, for example, uh, uh, I don't know, the, you know, these, are, the, these educational plans, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, interestingly, a distribution from an IRA is not subject to the Obamacare surtax, but a distribution from an RRSP in Canada because it's foreign is subject to the Obamacare surtax. I think I'll stop. Uh, you've heard enough? Yes. <laughs> well, you say you say. I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, you say all roads lead to renunciation of, of U.S. citizenship once once that citizen starts uh, filing U.S. taxes as as yeah. an, as an expat. Yeah, and then there's some for extra taxes. By the way, if they try to get out. Um, and they're what's called a covered expatriate, which basically means you own a home in a major world capital and have perhaps a pension plan. You're going to have li assets that are not liquid, but you're still deemed wealthy uh, by the United States. In other words, you know, your assets are over $2 million, even though you don't have access to them. Yeah. If you renounce, then they're going to hit you up with an exit tax where they're going to confiscate. And I, you heard right, confiscate. Uh, a good percentage of those assets. Wow, amazing. It's not amazing. It's U.S. exceptionalism. Who else but the United States could come up with by far the most punitive exit tax in the history of civilization and apply it primarily because the people who are renouncing are American citizens abroad apply it primarily to confiscate non-U.S. assets that were accumulated after people moved outside of the United States. Right. You just can't make this stuff up, John. I tell you, it's, it's, it's absolutely, uh, it, it's, it's flabbergasting. It, it's uh, the, the, the arrogance and the unfairness of it is, is it's astounding. It's astounding. Yeah, and you know, this goes back, this goes back, John, to John, uh, uh, the host, um, 
from what you what you said at the beginning of the podcast about Americans overseas just want to live the good life. I have to make a correction there. They just want to live a normal life. Yes. Just a normal life like anyone else. And as John Richardson has so uh, eloquently uh, expressed, it is just impossible to continue being U.S. tax compliant to do so. And just coincidentally this morning, um, no exaggeration, I spoke with two Americans overseas. They've been overseas married to French uh, people uh, for the past about 40 to 45 years. They both have finally come to the determination they can't do it any longer. And much to their chagrin, they are forced at this moment to start the process of renunciation. Yeah, because they can't do it anymore. Now, do you know if and they're they've tried? Now, do you know if they're in a situation where, in the process of their renunciation, that they will be uh, penalized? Uh, you know, this confiscation of assets or anything like that, or will it be a pretty, pretty much a straightforward? And I and I know the renunci- renunciation process is, I, I use the term straightforward, but it, it is a complicated and difficult process. But but are they are they fairly certain that they won't be penalized? Any extra with any sort of confiscation of assets or some huge tax that will be well, levied I mean, against them? Yeah, I, I think both one of them wants to do it now before they go over the threshold okay. where they would owe an exit tax. Right. And this uh, individual is on the cusp of a retirement. And John, the how other much? Individual, let, me, let, me, let me just ask real quick. John, how, what is the threshold for uh, the confiscation of assets when renouncing? Right. So there's three ways that you can have your assets confiscated. Okay. There's three triggers for the confiscation of the assets. Uh, the first would be if your net worth assets li- less liabilities exceeds two million U.S. dollars. Now that okay. may sound like a lot to uh, you know per, uh, to a school teacher living somewhere in Middle America, but if you live in a major city, London, even New York, let's look at American cities, uh, Tokyo, you know. San Francisco. A house. Yeah. Sure, San Francisco, a house is going to be well over a million dollars, okay? Sure, Add sure. to that, you know, if you've got any savings or a pension, and I guarantee you that it's, it's very easy together. So number one is the $2 million. The second thing would be if the average tax that you'd pay the United States over a five-year period exceeded 170000 on average. Now, that does presume a fairly high degree of income, but remember that I told you about the 2017 confiscation of the, uh, the assets in the Canadian Small Business Corporations. Let me give you an example. I spoke with a, a medical doctor who spent 30 years uh, you know, basically saving up, so he had that, and he was, you know, subject to a at least a million dollar tax, at least a million dollar tax, retroactive tax. Now, notice, notice, okay, that that million dollar has averaged over five years would exceed the hundred and seventy thousand threshold, even though he hadn't had any income, right? Right. Okay, so I mean, you know, that's so we have we have the, we have the the tax liability thing, which is an interesting problem, and then we have the whole issue of whether somebody can certify five years of tax compliance. Now, that doesn't really mean they're tax compliant because, of course, we know that's impossible. Uh, you know, I, I think it probably means best efforts, all income reported, et cetera. So, if if any one of those wires is tripped, any one of them, not all of them. People are immediately subject to the exit tax principles, 
And the ones who need to be really careful, really careful are the ones who have private pension plans because if those are pension plans located outside the United States, which they obviously are. John, are you sitting down or standing? I'm sitting down. (laughs) (laughs) Because the full present value of that pension, okay, is included in income, in U.S. income on the day before you renounce. So imagine that after 30, 35 years of work, you had a pension with a present value of a million plus, which is very easy to do. Sure. So if you want to renounce under those circumstances, you would have to include the million dollars in your final U.S. tax return. And let's see, top tax rate, 37%. Would that be a $370,000 confiscation on income that you've never received? Good Lord. Pretty cool, huh? Good Lord. Oh. Wow. Now, John, I have a question for you. Sure. Are you glad that you had us on this podcast today? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I had you all on um, because because I'm all about gathering information. But I tell you, again, th- this whole... This whole FATCA, this whole thing that I have to deal with the IRS, even though I have no income in the United States, it, it's, I have no words for how irritating that is. Irritating is a very mild word. I, I, I was cussing and swearing a lot on my earlier podcast with the gentleman from Australia, so I'm trying not to swear now. But, it, but So I'll use the word irritating. It's very irritating to have to deal uh, with that issue. Well, let me explain. Let me uh, explain to you why that is. I think that your, your listeners might find this interesting. It all comes down to definitions of tax residency. So here's how the Internal Revenue Code actually works. Section 1 says this. Every individual carbon life form on the planet, probably in the galaxy, is subject to U.S. worldwide taxation on all their income. Okay? Okay, it says every individual. And it stops there. But you can't interpret it the way John just said. John, say it again your way. Now, you uh, say every individual. restrict individual. It does not. Laura, <coughs> now let's be reasonable here. It does not restrict individual to anything. It's completely open-ended. Yes, that's true. And that's why John's interpretation is completely valid. Okay, yeah. Well, not only is it valid, but it's what provides the basis for imposing worldwide taxation on people who live in other countries on their non-U.S. income. Without that, they wouldn't be able to do that, really. Oh, that's true. And it also is the basis for taxing, you know, dogs and plants and things like that, which is ridiculous, but no less ridiculous um, than uh, taxing, you know, people who live outside the country on income that they made outside the country. But I, the gist is, is that the, the Internal Revenue Code is, 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 it just says it taxes every individual. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, your wife, I'm presuming, is not American. No, um, she's so, Norwegian, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if you wanted, if you really wanted to make a, um, a, a robust interpretation of the Internal Revenue Code, you could say every single person in the world is subject to U.S. taxes. Yeah. Well, but, but, Laura, that is what it says. And then further down. No, to be clear, that is what it says. Okay? No, they, that is what it says. Then what they do is they provide an exclusion for non-resident aliens. Okay? So if everybody's in the net, then we let out of the net the non-resident aliens. <laughs> wow. 
Okay. Yeah. So John's wife is probably yeah, a non-resident alien. She is a but non-resident going alien. Going back to yeah. the FACA inquisitions. Going back to the FACA inquisitions. If they really wanted to do this according to the law, the way it should work is that every individual in the world should line up to determine whether they're a non-resident alien. Because otherwise, they're subject to the U.S. tax system, not whether they're U.S. citizens. It's the other way around. Let me let me ask you guys this, and any one of you can answer this. What will SEAT do, or what can SEAT do in practical terms? What can SEAT do to help these expats like myself? Are you guys? Do you have do you have a do you have a direct telephone line to some? important senator or congressman or woman uh do you have um do you have any do you have some sort of cooperation with lobbyists there in dc what can you guys do in practical terms well i i actually um wanted to i think i can answer your question in part by also responding to something you said earlier okay you said you had words you know, you, you, you had some choice words that you wanted to <laughs> use in talking about your experience with, with yeah. filing, preparing your U.S. taxes. Yes. Well, I know what you can do with those words. What can I do if, with those if words? If you haven't already. What can I do? Because <laughs> one of the things that we're doing, and the first thing that we're doing, is we are conducting a survey, our questionnaire, for um, Americans, current Americans, former U.S. citizens who are living overseas, as well as their spouses or partners, even if they're not Americans themselves. Um, we are right now have a survey open where we would like to uh, get data on the experiences that all those people have with uh, the extraterritorial application of American tax policies and banking policies. So I would say the first place you should go with your words is to our survey. Um, and there's lots of places where you can put all the words you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm quite the prolific writer. And we won't be offended. I'm quite the prolific writer, offended. okay? I have a, uh, I have a, That's great. I have a stand-up comedy routine that is not for uh, those with tender ears, so. <laughs> well, I, I actually find that the comments people, there's lots of multiple choice questions you can click boxes in the survey, okay. but there's also text boxes where you can input text. And I find that the really most interesting things that come out of these surveys are the, are, are the words people use to express themselves and the stories that they tell, how they felt about different things. And so I, I'm hoping that um, all of your listeners who would qualify to take that a questionnaire, the survey. I hope that they'll go to our website and they'll find a link to it. And I hope that they'll take it. It's open until the end of the month. Um, so I'd like to encourage anyone and everyone yeah. who's eligible let to me, take uh, it. Let me give a shout out to and, your website. And that website, that is website. Your website. Your website is yep. seatnow.org. That's S-E-A-T-N-O-W.org. Uh, for those of you who are uh, current or former law enforcement or military, that's Sam Edward Adam, Tom Nora, OceanWilliam.org, seatnow.org. <laughs> And then uh, I've, I've looked at that website. It's, it's very easy to navigate through. Uh, I missed that form, though, so I'll go back and look at that, and I will I will write, uh, I will write something oh, on that Oh, that's form. worrisome if you missed it. We tried to make well, it obvious. Yeah, oh. but you're talking to a guy who does his podcast research uh, on the fly, you know, when I'm uh, supposed to be doing other things. So I, so I wasn't as focused as I should have been. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. So, so another another um, answer to your question is yeah. I think that there's many things. There are a lot of things that we will need to do. Um, so, you know, we need to we're education and advocacy organization. So we need to, you know, do what we can to to educate and to advocate. Um, there'll be different things um, posted on our website, you know, to, to you know, give opinions on things or to give information about different things. Um, we definitely will need to organize ourselves in order to approach the key members of Congress. Um, John and Karen and I have recently uh, written a paper that actually talks about how Treasury, how the Department of Treasury can address a lot of these issues um, uh, more quickly, perhaps, while we're waiting for a congressional solution. Um, so there's a link to that article that's also on our website. Okay. So, um, so those are some... Um, of the things that we're doing at the moment. So do you all Yeah, have- and I think eventually, I think eventually also, uh, obviously the avenue of uh, being in front of Congress is very important, but eventually also the pushback from other countries is going to be important as well. Okay. What countries are out there that are giving the most resistance? Well, let me, fr- let me rephrase that question. What countries are there who are, or are there any countries who are supporting expats are there any countries out there who understand the plight we are in? Ooh, that's a good question. Do, um, do they care? Is there, does anybody care? Well, I, you know, there's there's uh, another organization who is that has been on fire in really organizing themselves, and I think I mentioned it before, it's the Association of Accidental Americans in France that is has been spearheaded by Fabien Lagra, who happens to be an accidental American. And through his good works, there has been pushback started, um, you know, maybe three steps backwards, two steps forward, kind of, but in a forward motion in France. Um, there's been pushback starting in the Netherlands. There's also been a gentleman by the name of Jude Ryan who has had a petition open in front of the European Commission now. Uh, oh. I think it's the longest longest term that a petition has been open in front of the European really? Commission oh. um, that he is pushing back uh, there. And then, you know, guys, help me out with this. And also there's a lady in the UK who is dealing with privacy issues as it pertains to oh. personal data being, financial data being yeah. sent to the United States. under FATCA. So there's a number of different things that are being done, and the end result is to resolve this American injustice. Our focus just happens to be on the taxation aspect, but the works of all these other people, which is very important, comes down to the end result basically being the same. Interesting. Karen, I think also to answer your question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, ahead, Laura. Go ahead, Laura. And then I'll ask a question for Karen. Go ahead, Laura. Okay. I think, um, I think you can go back to what you said at the very beginning when we first started talking and you asked, is this an example of, is this imperialistic what the United States is doing? And, um, I think, um, one of the reasons why, uh, there are there's most of the governments in other countries are very resistant to do anything about this. Um, right now, they're being pressured to act with respect to FATCA, 
Um, they're not really being asked or pressured to act with respect to the taxation, the underlying taxation issues. No. And um, I think in either case, let me just interrupt you. Let me just asking let, let me, other governments. Let me, let me interrupt you here. Everyone, uh, all of us, we know what FATCA is, but maybe some of my listeners don't know what FATCA is. Can you real quick, uh, and then go back to your to your point? But can you really quick uh, explain what FATCA is? So FATCA is the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. And that's uh, what we were discussing a little while ago is the law that was adopted in 2010 and implemented 2012, 2013, um, that requires, um, well, it, it requires U.S. taxpayers to make additional disclosures about their bank accounts, um, overseas bank accounts. But the real clincher of this law is it requires all foreign banks to find, identify their uh, their sus U.S. They're suspected U.S. Uh, person clients. That's yeah. the, actually the terminology, suspected U.S. person terminology, which Oof. is the terminology you use for criminals. I'm a suspect. They're supposed to find them, get their Social Security numbers, and report information on their accounts yeah. back to the IRS. Yeah, thank you for that. I so, just wanted to get, I just wanted to get a clear definition of FATCA out there for my listeners. I'm sure some of them okay. have been scratching their heads for the last uh, hour wondering what um, the heck FATCA is. So yeah, thank I you. I understand. Yeah. Well, think about the word. It's meant. It was. It was meant to. It's. It's fat cats with the. I've. I've, I've been thinking that all along. Fat cat. You know, there's a joke in there. I'm always going back to right. the stand-up comedy and, routine thing. So there's. Yeah. A, hey. And I think it's important also to add, and I know John mentioned IGAs, that those are intergovernmental agreements. And those are the agreements between the United States and the different countries um, around the world who implement FATCA. And keep in mind that this implementation is a forced implementation, because if the country chooses not to do so, then they can be hit with the 30% withholding penalty, or their banks can, on any uh, U.S. sourced uh, uh, exchange uh, income, etc. So it's called an agreement, but it actually is a forced mm. agreement on these yeah. countries. Yeah. But um, uh, thanks for that, Keith. But, but back to you, Laura. You were kind of in the middle of a point when I asked you to define FATCA. If you could go back to that. Um, well, I, I just wanted to say that I, I think you you raised the point at the beginning about is this imperialistic, mm -hmm. and um, and you're also asking why is it that maybe uh, governments of other countries aren't um, standing up for the people for the residents and who are often many of them also citizens. Do they have dual citizenship and there are citizens of the countries where they live, yeah. and so why aren't they standing up? for their residents and their own citizens. And I think a big part of it is that you're talking about the United States. You're yeah. not talking about a smaller country with no power. Yeah. And how do you stand up to the United States? Right, right. Do you want to? Right. Are you gonna, you know, is it worth is it worth the price that the United States is gonna make you pay? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Wow. And, and now I forgot the question. I'm such a terrible podcast host. I forgot the question I was going <laughs> to pose to Karen. Um, uh, but I can move on to a different question I had. Uh, and Karen, maybe you can answer this or anyone can answer it. But let me pose it to you, Karen. What do you say as an expat? Uh, what, what would you recommend expats say to their fellow Americans at home who tell them, hey, you chose to move. Uh, stop your belly aching. You chose to move. Stop your belly aching and follow the law. 
No other country in the world does this. But hey, this no is America. But hey, this American is America. But this is America. We can do. You know, we're the we're the leaders of the free world. You're not a patriot. You're yeah, not a yeah. patriot. Mike doesn't make right. <laughs> you're not. But you're not a patriot. Don't um, you love your country? No, it's not a question of patriotism. It's not a question of patriotism. Patriotism. This is. <laughs> The U.S. is so hypocritical on this whole thing because they say, okay, if you're a U.S. citizen, we're going to tax you no matter where you live. But if you're not a U.S. citizen and you live in the U.S., we're going to tax you just as much, right? Yeah. So whether you're a citizen or not only matters if you're living outside the U.S. It seems like they really and, have to. And, and on I? top of that, then, and then on top of that, the U.S. imposes more punitive tax rules for foreign assets. So right. who's going to own foreign assets? It's going to be the people who live in those countries who yeah. are more likely to own the foreign assets, which so are local assets you, to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you're going going to insist that that taxation is a um, is tied to citizenship. At least impose the same rules on all of us. <clears throat> so I would Let imagine me count my Australian, you know, retirement account as a qualified retirement account. Yeah. Let me count my Australian mutual fund as just a mutual fund and and tax it as a mutual fund. Yeah. Yeah. But Let me have US my disability and not tax it. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is. You know, I, I think I, so. Laura, what were you saying? The other saying? point I was going to make is oh, yeah, go ahead. people say, okay. I'm sorry, go ahead, Karen. Say, okay, go ahead, yeah, Karen. Eritrea is the other country. Yeah, Eritrea is another country that's listed as having citizenship based taxation. It's, as I understand it, a two page form where you basically say, here's my income, here's 2% of it. Um, <sighs> I'm sure every American expat would be willing to do that. Right. Oh, sure. The, I'd sign know, up. If they could comply with U.S. Yeah, if you could comply with the U.S. tax code with a two-page form or let me submit my Australian tax return so you can see that I'm paying tax elsewhere, people yeah. would, would do that. Yeah. But the rules as they are, first of all, for people who have no e economic um, economic connection to the United States – why should the U.S. have the right to tax their non-U.S. income? Yeah. It's, it's mind-boggling that they would do that. Yeah, go ahead, Laura. Go ahead. Um, I think um, you have to go back to what you said before. What do you say to people who say, well, you chose to, to leave, live outside the United States? There are multiple responses to that. Number one is there are lots of people who did not choose. They left when they were children or they were have never lived inside the United States. For those who, okay, I guess they chose in some way to live outside the United States, I would say to you, first of all, um, what's the, what's the um, obvious outcome of the question that you're asking? That people aren't then free to live outside the United States? That people should not live outside the United States? And um, what you're saying is then Americans are not free to live outside the United States. That's the, that is what that question is saying, that Americans are not free to live outside the United States. And the other thing I want to say is that um, the United States has signed and ratified more than one uh, uh, human rights uh, treaty 
that says that um, people have the right to leave their country and they have the right to return to their country. So that's not an abstract or a luxury. That, that's a human right in documents that the United States has signed and ratified. So that's what I think about that argument about, you know, why well, you chose to live outside the country. I it's a ridiculous argument <laughs> absolutely absolutely I, I was quite playfully being the devil's advocate there so i hope everyone i hope my listeners understand that um <laughs> but, no absolutely but you're asking questions that we get all the time yes, yes and it's important to you know give a proper response if you're if you're okay you may be able to leave the country but you're going to be punished for you're it be penalized for it yeah well, and there's just something inherently unfair about that. Uh, call me a crybaby, but there is something inherently unfair with that. But how far away are we from from any kind of change? Is who, Who's listening to us right now? That's a really good question. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a good I'm a, I'm a pretty good. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you look at a lot of changes like this where things that have been unfair are changed in the law, and you go years and years where it looks like nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden it snowballs. Yeah. And when is it going to snowball? Who knows? Who knows? But at some point, there'll be some critical mass of, with people who understand the actual – this is why education is part of our mission, mission. Because once people really understand how unfair this is, they, 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 um, they're on side in terms of, of getting it fixed. Okay. But – so, you know, it, it will snowball at some point. Yeah. No way to predict when. Uh, that's that's no, no. Go ahead, John. No, please go ahead. No, John. I am Richardson. absolutely certain that these laws will be changed. Um, the only thing that you're really betting on is time. I do not think that they are. They're going to change in the um, a time frame that's relevant for many of the listeners here. Um. You know, I'm not sure exactly what, you know, what it will be that will trigger the changes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they, they certainly will come. Uh, there is no doubt. I mean, listening to Karen, I think even more particularly Laura talk about this. The citizenship-based taxation uh, at its core uh, is immoral. And I think to some extent, um, the fact that Eritrea also does this provides cover for a certain type of person who would say, well, you know, there are other, there are other countries who do this. <laughs> Eritrea also has citizenship taxation. But because it's so different, I mean, the reality is that uh, to compare uh, Eritrea to the United States in terms of the tax policies is really a gross insult to the nation of Eritrea. Uh, because the United States is, is just uh, so much more abusive. Yeah. Now, on the issue of the, the abuse, I think here's something that, that I would like to add to this. Sure, sure. Um, many, many sort of tax lawyers, tax scholars, tax historians, if you will, often point to the 1924 decision in Cook versus Tate where the Supreme Court of the United States Basically, I think it could be interpreted held that the United States has the right to impose 
uh, citizenship-based taxation. Um, however, that was in a completely different world where citizenship meant different things. Their dual citizenship was not common. No. And we certainly didn't have the complexity of the tax code, which is Karen has so aptly described. Uh, you know, really does punish people uh, with foreign assets and that sort of stuff. Now, in other words, things are not what they were in 1924, obviously. I mean, this is a concept, a fact that's understandable to anybody unless you're in the tax world. <laughs> things are not the same as they were in 1924. But in 1967, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down a decision in a case called a 4M, which, among other things... Uh, which opened the door to dual citizenship, but in a general sense, it said that Congress cannot do things that result in the forcible destruction of citizenship. And my view of this is that people are being forced to renounce. Nobody yes. renounces because they want to. And why would they? At a minimum, they have to pay $2,350, right, to the state department. Why would they? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, nobody's, you know, plus the time and the expense of getting there. Nobody's renouncing because they want to. They're renouncing because they have to. Um, and I think that the the next sort of stage in the possible litigation is a 14th Amendment challenge based on the Aforium case, which specifically says that Congress cannot do things that result in the forcible destruction of citizenship. I mean, as it stands now, renunciation of citizenship is voluntary only in the sort of sense of the line out of the godfather where either it's your brains or your signature that will be on the contract. <laughs> I, I did not think we would be quoting the godfather on this episode, but hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. We're talking about the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah you know, it fit. Yeah, you're right. It fits. It is definitely why, in context. Why would it surprise you? It is definitely in context. Yeah. <laughs> um, K- Karen, you, you have renounced, correct? Yes, I have. Any regrets? No, no, no regrets. Was, um, it, was it a hard thing to I, do, or did it come easy? It, it once you've decided that you're going to be living the rest of your life outside of the U.S. and you want to plan for your retirement. I mean, I'm I'm over sixty. I'm going to be retiring reasonably soon, right? Yeah. I need to be able to plan for that. Yeah. And it became, you know, there really was no choice. Yes, I resent having to ha- <clears throat> having to have given up the right to. So now, you know, if my elderly mother gets sick, I can't move back to. To, yeah. to help her. I think well, about that. I think about that all the that. time. That is specifically the biggest uh, thing that I think of when it comes to renou- renouncing my citizenship. It, I'll, I'll, I'll feel so cut off from my family. That's what I would struggle with. But the I most. don't feel so much cut off, but I can't contribute the same way my siblings who live in the U.S. can. Yeah. I can go and you know, stay there for um, 90 days without any problem. Yeah, but then but you have to go out again. more than 90 yeah. days, then i got to start. Yeah. Then, yeah. So, um, yeah, and I've had no trouble entering the U.S. I mean, at the moment, it's harder to leave Australia than it is to enter the U.S. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, so no, no regrets. No regrets. No. Um, it was not it was not an easy decision, but once I'd made it, it was clear. Yeah. It was clear that it had to be done. Well, it's got to be a certain sense of uh, being free, <laughs> a sense of freedom when all of a sudden you can actu- you it can is. actually plan for your retirement, you know? And that's the ironic right. part, that you're, you're free. So, exactly, exactly. I, I was, so I was able to start doing the financial planning I probably should have done 10 years earlier yeah. in terms of contributing to my Australian retirement saving so how many years ago was so it that, that you, my, you know, how many years ago was it that you four uh, years ago four years ago okay it's relatively fresh four years ago relatively fresh then yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i don't know i i can i can see yeah. that situation i can see it coming the, the, the day will come where i have to make a decision um but my God, I know it's going to be a tough decision. I mean, it's, I've always looked at my citizenship as a big part of my identity. That's the main reason why I don't have dual citizenship, because I would feel like becoming a Norwegian citizen will water down part of my identity. But then again, there is this thing looming over the horizon, all of this about uh, retirement and, 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 uh, and how effective I can plan. Oh, and living a normal life where you live. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a rough uh, it's a rough situation yeah. to be in. Oh well, that's the reason why we have decided to put together this organization to work on these issues. It's 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 about time. It's time. What's the, what's the first People big? People shouldn't be forced to renounce the way I was. Yeah. What's the next big move you guys are going to make? How, what are you going to do now to shake things up and try and get a little momentum? Well, the survey is our, our first real big thing, and there will be a report on that in, in February or so. So right um, now you're gathering information. You're, kind of tr- you're trying to see what the masses are thinking, what we need, what, what kind of direction we would like to, for you guys to go in our name. That's basically what you're doing, an information gathering process? Yeah, right we're, 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 we're gathering information that we can use to um, expose the human side of this problem so that we can then take that information to decision makers in, um, in the U.S. and elsewhere to work on how we can fix the problem. So... Is there talk of one or more of you in the in the leadership of of the organization having to go uh, physically to Washington D.C. and sit down and meet with? Uh, I don't know. Are you going to meet with lobbyists or, or, or senators and congressmen? What's uh... well? That's certainly within what we need to do. And yeah. I'm currently in Washington, so yeah. it'll be good to take advantage of the time that I'm here. But regardless, that's what we'll need to do. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, and part of the process is putting together a robust educational advocacy platform to uh, start the start doing so with a new Congress coming into play uh, the beginning of January or in January. OK. And, and just, just while it's very important to meet with uh, members of Congress and their staff, their staffers, um, 
that's not at all the only thing that needs to be done. There are, you know, other organizations uh, representing Americans living overseas have been doing that for a long time. And it's very important. It does need to be done. Um, but it's not at all the only thing. It's, it's not just doing that um, is, is not going to change very much at all. Right. It has to be backed up by a lot more things. Is there a person in the political apparatus who you all think is more or will be more receptive to what we're looking to do? You know, do you have that? Do you have that? Do you have that person behind the scenes in Washington that you think can help facilitate change? Do you have anybody's ear at at this moment? I think with the change in Congress, um, I think we might have lost some people. Um, it's because we had Representative Holding in North Carolina, yeah. um, but who definitely was attuned to these issues. But he's not a member right. of Congress anymore. Right. Um, and I think um, theoretically, um, people who have lived overseas or have family members who live overseas who have faced these issues theoretically should be more receptive yeah uh, whether that you know is the reality so are we talking about it to some talking- extent there's a brand new congress and we haven't really had a chance to strategize as to where the best place to put our lever and move the world yeah but when you get a feel for the current congress uh, is it feasible that you would have a targeted campaign you know you would you would you would um target, so to speak, a specific congressman or woman or a specific senator or a specific lobbyist and, and, and kind of pitch your idea, pitch your, your, um, yeah, pitch your ideas to a specific person. Is that part so, of your strategy? So the, the, yeah. the conventional wisdom is that you need to target the people that are on the key committees. Yeah. So for us, it would be ways and means or the Senate finance committee, um, and that, that would be kind of, I guess, the the, the most obvious people mm-hmm. to target. And on top of that, um, and, and uh, it would be great, of course, to be able to target those with testimony from people in their constituencies. I see. Um, to say, you know, these are people from your constituencies who are having these problems. Um, well, so I, I can tell I you when I post when I post this episode, I'm going to make sure I put a note in that posting to uh, to to expats to go in on your website and fill out that form and get their story out there and get it to you guys. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you. I'll make sure you have the link. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, I tell you. Do you think it might be helpful to uh, tell John about the, our suggestion that perhaps we can get a faster result by targeting Treasury? Well, we I alluded to that a little while ago. Um, we can talk about it more in detail, John. Yeah. I, I mentioned earlier that Karen and John and I just published a paper that talks about how we think Treasury can solve a lot of these problems while we're waiting for Congress to uh, to take action. Um, John, do you want to talk about it? Uh, sure. Um, so basically, you know, for many, many years, everybody's been, you know, trying to target Congress on this. And it's a very difficult problem because it's so far beyond the experience of, of most Congress uh, men and women anyway. Plus, 
you know, I don't think that overseas Americans are really seen as constituents generally, but I mean, they have no consciousness or interest in, say, the Occidentals who, you know, yeah. perhaps have never even lived in the United States. Yeah. But what is interesting is that, as far as I can see, really all of the major problems, um, the ones that Karen talked about, that because the life of an American abroad is well foreign to the United States and that results in separate and punitive taxation. As far as I can tell, all of these problems can actually be alleviate, alleviated uh, through Treasury regulations. Okay. Because so many of the sections of the Internal Revenue Code give Treasury the authority to make rules. Uh-huh. And I see that as a more practical, you know, possibly... Uh, a quicker result, although certainly, you know, the, the change in the law is required, but this would be a way to essentially uh, neuter or nullify the disaster effects of these rules without a change in the law at all. And I would also suggest, and this is part of the paper, that, you know, we had the discussion a few minutes ago about, you know, every individual, unless you're a non-resident alien, being subject to worldwide taxation. Well, interestingly, uh, the Treasury regulation under Section 1 specifically defines individual uh, as a citizen or a resident. And if they can define individual as a citizen or a resident, you know, I would suggest that they could also define it as somebody who's domiciled in the United States or actually resides in the United States. Domicile is not the same as citizenship. That's what a lot of other countries do. And I would point out that for the purposes of the estate and gift tax rules, uh, domicile is relevant unless you're a citizen. So the point is that there's a range of there's a there's a wide range of ways that one can define individual in the regulations. And I don't believe it has to be tied specifically to citizens. So in other words, I think that Treasury could effectively end citizenship taxation through it by regulation. Huh. And that's the thrust of our paper. Okay. Um, you know, I would invite you to, you know, maybe, you know, put a link to that, too, as well. I don't know, up to you. But, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that know, would definitely be. It's a new way of looking at an old problem. Okay. Yeah, I would definitely like that link. I, I actually started looking at that paper myself, but uh, if so, if one of you guys can send me that link, I'll post that as well. Well, I barely got going on it. I actually fell asleep. Sorry. <laughs> You know, that, I, I'm not at all surprised by that. <laughs> he fell asleep. I fell asleep. Oh, well, you man. Know, uh, Karen, Laura, and I did a podcast <laughs> on, on tax notes, and I made the point in the podcast that I actually thought this up when, um, you know, I was having trouble sleeping one night, and I decided that, well, you know, what could put me asleep faster than anything but the Internal Revenue Code? <laughs> So I started reading the Internal Revenue Code, and I got as far as Section 1 and the regulation. Uh, that was as far as I had to get because it was clear to me just based on that. I think I read. It could be solved. So, I think John, I, read, I completely agree with you. This stuff is boring and horrible. I think I read the first paragraph like four times, and then I ended up falling asleep. But but for me, that kind of reading is actually well, very interesting. John, maybe could you send it out as the antidote to sleeping pills then? Hey, Only there you go. sleeping. Read this great paper to reform Hey, we can market that. <laughs> Absolutely. No, actually, that kind of reading is actually interesting to me. I just started reading it at the wrong time. I was already tired. Um, but no, that kind of information, I think, would be very good uh, information for my listeners to have. So yeah, when we're finished here, if someone can send me that link, I'll make sure I post it. 
Um, and also the, um, the, 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 the survey that you are encouraging people to, to fill out their personal experiences with this. That's also a good, a good link for me to post as well. Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I've enjoyed this conversation. Do you guys have anything you'd like to add uh, before we close out here? I think we've covered a lot of ground. We sure did. And I know for a lot of people, it's a vast web uh, to get one's uh, hand, you know, head around. But it's important but I think information. It really is, as I yeah, say, it this, just shows the problem that I, exists. Yeah, just about every. In fact, I can probably say every American expat that I've spoken with here in Norway um, has been concerned about this. So this is a podcast episode with information that is relevant to a lot of my listeners. Absolutely. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you all for coming on. Um, like I said, I've enjoyed this. And, and again, I'm honored that you uh, chose to come to my tiny, tiny little platform here and share such relevant and important information. I'm, I'm honored. I'm humbled by it. So I thank you all very much. Well, we thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, thanks so much for, yeah. for talking to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I will be uh, I will be coming back to you all to get a get an update from time to time and, and have you on uh, as a group or, or individually just to just to keep myself and my listeners updated. I'm a little selfish. I want to keep myself updated first and foremost. But uh, uh, it's just it's a it's a bonus if my if my listeners get anything out of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay my friends well i think that one of the big issues here is awareness okay it's important yes. to spread awareness education yes. you yes. know everywhere everywhere because you know john it seems to me that it's really really important for americans abroad and everybody affected by these problems to recognize that regardless of what other differences they may have that this is a unifying theme and they have got to come together to support change in this area. Yes. I mean, this is, this is tough. It's a long road, but I think that, that the, not only the, the strong support, but the perception of well, really yes. strong support is necessary to get this change done. Yeah, if, if you if you all are, are good at uh, getting that information out there, I can't believe that a reasonable person would not be moved when they hear the current situation. I can't believe that people wouldn't want to get on board and support uh, the type of change that we're looking for uh, because it is an unreasonable set of rules and laws. And I think most reasonable people will see that. So, uh, Hey, I'm, I'm glad to help uh, to get the information out there. I think that's what it's going to take getting the information out there to as many people as possible. And if you're able to do that, then the change will come. I truly believe it hopefully sooner rather than later, but, uh, we'll see. I plan on living for quite a while. Maybe I'll see some change. Maybe not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, maybe you'll live so long that you can say to your grandchildren, my God, I remember there was a time when there was something called citizenship taxation. Hey, you know, absolutely. And I'll say, no, no, you got to be kidding. <laughs> and then I'll, and then I'll go into my art. Then I'll go into my archives and pull up this episode. And there's the proof. There you go. <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, no, I want to say, no, that's a lie. They made it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they sometimes say that now. They sometimes say right. that. Now. I can yes, imagine. It. Yeah, they do. They shake their head. Can't believe it. <laughs> 
Well, listen, Karen, uh, Laura, Keith, and John, uh, thank you all so much for coming on uh, again. I, I truly appreciate it. Uh, I'm honored, and you all have a place here on this podcast. Anytime you have anything, uh, any news, any updates you want to have, uh, bring it here. Uh, otherwise, I'll be contacting you just to hear if there's an update uh, to be had. So uh, thanks a lot for doing this, you guys. Will do. Thank you. And for my listeners, you're welcome. You. You're very welcome. And for my listeners out there, please go to seatnow.org. That's S-E-A-T-N-O-W dot org. Do it, people. Get educated. Find out what's going on. Get involved. Tell people about this organization. And take the survey. Take the survey. Uh, you guys will see a link to this. I'll link it to this episode. Take the survey. Uh, get involved. Find out what's going on. Tell people about it. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thank you and goodbye.